Wintrust Business Lunch with Sarah Foster, now an analyst at Bankrate, the people that are always doing interesting surveys. And here's another one. Sarah, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Always great to be here. So Gen Zers and millennials are sort of in the crosshairs of this study. What are we finding out about them and their money? Well, we're learning about new sentiments that they have about their prospects for growing wealth. And nearly two in five of them are saying that they have had a harder time building financial wealth than their parents did at their age due to the economy. At least those are what their feelings are. And so we're also kind of seeing here what this means for their finances. And over a, you know, a quarter of them say that they're pursuing or uh, have considered pursuing alternative measures to grow their wealth. For instance? Well, I, I think what alternative measures means, according to the young Americans that we spoke to for this research, is it's this feeling of having to take wealth-building steps that go even further than their parents did. And so the typical, at least historically speaking, the path to growing wealth has been homeownership. But many Americans, you know, they're still considering homeownership a, a core aspect of the American dream. But they're kind of delaying that journey and taking other steps to grow their wealth, as in prioritizing their careers, bolstering their income through side hustles. Uh, both Gen Z and millennials are the generations most likely to take career action, both in 2023 and 2024. And they're even more likely than older generations to be bringing in extra money on the side. I think that um, side hustle business is something that clearly my parents' generation, um, there was plenty of people that had to work two jobs, but the traditional single income earner in a household with the other partner staying home with the kids. Usually that's the male and the female. That's that's not the model, I think, that a lot of new parents um, are are using these days. That, that has to be the difference you're talking about, right? Yeah, and I think at the heart of these differences are really two key ways that, you know, careers and income prospects have evolved over time. And I didn't think about these when I began this research, but I, I think what's at stake here is the decline in pensions. A lot of younger Americans are really noticing that they might really kind of be on their own here when it comes to saving for retirement, building financial wealth for the future. And then uh, also company loyalty. Uh, mm. I think psychologically, the, these past two recessions that we've had with the coronavirus pandemic and then the Great Recession before it, have really disrupted the way younger Americans feel about their careers and whether they actually do feel like a, a stable job is attainable. Yeah, I don't know of an, on who the onus rests here. That is my parents' generation, for instance. You'd go work for Caterpillar or IBM, and that would be it for life. You were set. Um, it, that does not seem to be the case now, either because companies um, are not as nurturing or people are less loyal. But either way, that does not seem to be a prototypical model now, does it? I would say that younger Americans have definitely been the ones most interested in job hopping and asking for raises and making sure that they're advocating for the work environment that they're most interested in. Yeah. And we see that kind of filter out in the data, too. So, I think, you know, it, it is hard to underestimate the impact that these major recessions have had on just the psyche of these younger generations, particularly because they 
occurred in their lives at such a critical developing point. Um, millennials, for example, were really just breaking into the labor market for the first time when the Great Recession hit. And of course, many Gen Zers were graduating college when the coronavirus pandemic was occurring. It's it's we often see in research that the brain has a negative negativity bias when it comes to money. The brain has a negativity bias. What are you talking about there? I think what this means is younger generations and all generations might seem to hold on to the memories of painful financial losses or at least disruptive financial events more prominently than they they remember kind of the good aspects, maybe about their families later doubling their wealth because the market improved after the Great Recession. Uh, think, maybe their families taking advantage of that low-rate era in the middle of the coronavirus pandemic. I believe some of that is happening right now with respect to inflation. People tend to, less than 10% of uh, household income is spent on food, and food prices are still high, but so many other things are less expensive, and yet I don't know if that's a recency bias or just the fact that you go grocery shopping more often than you go television shopping. But, um, in fact, inflation is not as onerous right now as I think people believe it to be. Um, I don't want to get into a fight about that, but I do think there's some truth to that. There's a piece in The Wall Street Journal about that today. Uh, Just one last thing from you, though. do you feel like these Gen Xers and Gen Zers that we're talking about, or the Gen Zers and Millennials, um, are less patient about acquiring or building wealth? Um, is is there something about that? Again, my parents' generation had no expectations of wealth, and they just <laughs> they just plodded through life. And then, what do you know? They had some money at the end of the day. Um, I wonder how that compares to young people now. Yeah, it's a great question, and I wish we had kind of an indication in the data, but what I can kind of say is just anecdotally speaking, and especially in our research for this study, well, what we saw is that younger Americans do have this negative sentiment about the economy, but on paper, they're actually picking up pretty quick speed at amassing wealth and looking past those impacts from the Great Recession and the coronavirus pandemic. Actually, uh, in you know the few years since the coronavirus pandemic, according to Fed research, the growth rate in the net worth for Americans under the age of 35 has grown by 143%, which is a record. So I, I think what is difficult, too, is that we also really see that younger Americans might not feel like the playing field is equal, but a lot of the per- their perceptions about money are closely tied to their parents. So while the the destination might be similar, and the journey is a little bit different in that they're achieving these milestones later in life. And for that reason, you know, impatience and just kind of a negative feeling about the economy could become a concern. You can read about this survey at bankrate.com. Sarah Foster is an analyst there. Nice to talk to you today, Sarah. Thanks for the thoughts. Thanks for having me. Hi, Bree Fowler. Welcome back to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. Bree is a senior writer at CNET. Um, Samsung Unpacked. Talk to me about this and talk to me about the circle to search feature on the new Samsung phone. Well, Samsung had their big splashy um, new phones event yesterday where they unveiled the Galaxy S24 and S24 Plus phones. And, you know, they, they had the usual incremental upgrades like smaller bezels, bigger screens, better cameras, bright, brighter 
displays. Um, but what's interesting is that, of course, they're throwing AI capabilities into them. And they will be on-device uh, generative AI capabilities, which means some of it will be actually done on the phone as opposed to in the cloud. Um, but the coolest feature, a lot of people would say, is this uh, you know circling feature. Uh, it's circle to search and use your finger to circle something on the screen, and AI can look it up and tell you what it is. So if I'm touring somewhere, what am I going to take a picture of it and then use that screen grab to circle and then hit the AI button, something like that? Yeah, pretty much. Um, maybe it's a landmark you just saw, um, you know, in uh, hiking or, you know, in photos that maybe somebody sent you. Um, it, it's just another capability. But it, it's also important to mention that something like that needs to be done in the cloud. It can't be done on your device. So, you know, your data is going to the cloud, and you need that Internet connection to do that. Would it work on other human beings? Could I circle somebody, and maybe it's a celebrity, it will tell me? You know, I'm not sure. That That's that's an interesting question. And it's certainly something that, like, um, you know, us at CNET will be trying out and, you know, testing to see exactly how well this actually works. It's kind of intriguing, isn't it? If you're looking for somebody, be it for good reasons or bad reasons, that sort of uh, facial identity with AI could be crazy powerful. Um, Apple Watch patent story at CNET. What's this one? Yeah, this is one of those soap operas that just hasn't ended. Um, Apple is going to start selling its newest flagship smartwatches without the ability to check people's blood oxygen levels. Um, this is because of a patent dispute that it has had uh, going for a while uh, with another company uh, called Massimo um, that does medical tech. And right now the courts have kind of ruled that that Apple has infringed infringed on that company's patents, um, and you know that until that is basically uh, settled, Apple is going to remove this feature from its watches that it hasn't sold yet. If I do have a watch with that, though, it'll still function that way, right? Yes, that it any watch in existence now that has that feature will still be able to use it. I, what I'm unclear of is, you know, the ones that are in stores right now, if those will be affected. Supposedly, this kicks in today. Iowa is going to sue TikTok. Uh, what's happening there? Yes, Iowa is the latest state to actually sue TikTok. And this is dealing with the social media company's claims um, about how, you know, it, it, it deals with kids and what it is exposing them to. And Iowa is another state that is, worried that the company is deceiving consumers about the amount of what it considers inappropriate content that kids can access through the platform. Um, TikTok claims that, you know, it is for kids 12 and up and that, you know, what they see will be appropriate for kids that age. But, um, you know, the state of Iowa, along with others, have argued that Kids are seeing plenty of uh, stuff that is inappropriate for, you know, tweens, teens, things like that. Is this any different than what Montana did? Wasn't it Montana that sued to uh, disable TikTok in their state? Well, Montana passed a law that would ban TikTok in their state, and that is still being dealt with in the courts. And, you know, from a nuts and bolts perspective, it's kind of unclear how they're actually going to enforce that if it actually does become law. These states are suing for damages. Um, 
dealing with not just Iowa, but Utah, Arkansas, um, Indiana, the, the court threw out the lawsuit. Um, but, you know, they're, they're looking for TikTok to, to not be banned, but to change the way that it regulates itself. And they're suing for damages on behalf of the kids of their state. What's the value of the damages that TikTok has put on young people? I wonder what that number is. Well, I, I think that's one of those things that a court would have to figure out. Um, you know, maybe this is one of those things where they settle. Um, and I think it's more about changing policy and changing the way that TikTok operates and what it exposes kids to. Um, and, and, you know, it may be something that has to be sorted out at the federal level as well. Bray Fowler is a senior writer at CNET.com and always interesting here, too. Thanks, Bree. Thanks a lot. Dale Buss is a contributing editor, chief executive magazine, and founder of and executive director of the Flyover Coalition. He talks to us about a lot of things a lot of times, sometimes about cars and stuff like that. Hi, Dale. Welcome back to the show. Hey, John. Thanks a lot. Good to be with you. Happy New Year. You wrote a piece titled, What Are Auto Suppliers Supposed to Do As EV Revolution Stalls? Is the electric vehicle revolution stalling? Oh, it absolutely is. Um, I mean, if you talk to uh, car company executives, supplier executives, if you talk to independent experts, they'll say, well, it's coming, it's coming. You can bank on it. There's billions of dollars being invested in plants. There's billions of dollars being invested in infrastructure, yada, yada. However, it definitely has stalled and slowed down. And, And there are indicators of that from the slowing increase in sales of EVs to, as you mentioned a few minutes ago, cold weather kind of slaps people in the face about EVs like nothing else. Yeah. It, it's a matter of, will my car lose charge? How fast will it lose charge? So those issues with EVs in terms of uh, range identification and accurate you know, provision of information about how far you have to drive really come into play. So if you've got an EV and you're out in suburban Chicago and you're like, okay, I got a 25-mile commute, my Indicator says I've got 75 miles left. Oh, no, 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 no. In cold weather, you might have 30, 35, 25 even. And so what do you do? So these kinds of things are really being underscored. And and everybody is feeling whipsawed by EVs these days. So consumers, you know, see that the Biden administration is accelerating its push to uh, get these public chargers built. They just released another $600 million for that. Um they see more and more EV models coming out. But at the same time, they see what happens in cold weather. They see that now dealers have the onus of uh, getting the the $7,500 federal government rebates for their customers uh, rather than have customers apply for them and, and, uh, and note them on their taxes. And you mentioned the piece I did about suppliers for chief executive. What do they do? I mean, do they commit to this EV revolution? and please the, uh, the the original equipment manufacturers who want them to participate, or they say, i got to keep my powder dry here. I don't know which way this thing is going to go, and I don't know how fast it's going to go. And dear GM or Ford or, or Delantis, what are you going to do to make sure that I don't get out of my skis as a supplier to supply a revolution, quote-unquote, that you are now slowing down? So there's a lot of dynamics here. Well, you make it sound like it's about the pace, but not the direction. You're not saying that electric cars are not the future, are you? No, but 
you know, it's kind of, it reminds me quite a bit of the, the automatic car, the driverless car revolution that was, you know, started 10 years ago. And by now, John, we're all supposed to be getting uh, automated rides to work and relaxing, reading, you know, our phones while, uh, while uh, automated taxis, you know, drove us around and dropped us off. Well, that thing's been delayed 5, 10, 15, 20 years. I'm not saying that what's happening to EVs is that drastic, but there's definitely a slowdown and you see the signals all over. And, and here's one, Hertz wanted to be a leader in EVs. And they just announced the other day that, um, oops, we're going to sell 20,000 of the EVs we've already bought and, and replace them with internal combustion cars because the whole rental car equation with EVs is just so difficult with charging and, and everything. So a lot of monkey wrenches are being thrown in here. And the question that the auto industry has from the OEMs down through suppliers at the bottom is, you know, how fast, how much do we commit to this? And in the midst of it, how do we differentiate ourselves as brands and as companies? And so in, in that regard, one company that sticks out is Toyota. Toyota didn't want to do EVs at all. Eventually they got pulled into it and they had early hybrids like Prius, which they're still making and selling. So Toyota has said, well, we'll do EVs, but we want to really want to hybridize our fleet. We're going to focus on hybrids, which, as you know, have a gasoline engine. They can provide power from an internal combustion engine as well as be charged uh, as, as an electric powertrain. So I think what may happen in the short term is more customers, you know, heading into hybrids and just kind of giving the whole um, complete battery electric vehicle uh, segment a little time to, to settle out because it's just, there's just too much going on and really, frankly, too much at risk for, for consumers and suppliers and, and everyone. Well, what does the automotive world know now that they didn't know then? I mean, we didn't have charging well, stations when everybody got enthusiastic about it, and yeah. the rebates are going directly to the consumers now. Uh, I, I know right. there's going to be a lag here but uh, on that, but what, what's, what well, have they suddenly the come to grips with? It's not that they suddenly came to grips with something. I, I think in their private offices they're saying, see, I told you so, because the industry did not want to head, go headlong into EVs as fast as progressive activists, you know, non-governmental organizations, progressive politicians, and lately since he's been in power, President Biden has literally pushed this quote-unquote revolution along by subsidizing electric vehicle plant construction, uh, infra infrastructure uh, charging uh, initiatives and all this to the tune of hundreds of billions, if not trillions of dollars. So, and the regulatory punch to back all that up, saying you got to you know, auto companies have to increase your average uh, fleet fuel economy, you know, manifold in the next several years. So they're being pushed. And what's happened is they thought they might be able to bring consumers along because EVs, I mean, I drive a lot of them because I, re I review and write about vehicles. They're great. They're fun to drive. They have no, you know, sort of issues of drivability or their comfort inside is great because there's more room because there's not a drivetrain underneath that you have to accommodate. But people just don't want them yet. They're more expensive, even with the rebates. You can't necessarily count on getting a charging station anywhere. Costs a few thousand dollars to get a charging station in your home. If you want to charge a vehicle overnight, good luck. It may be ready in the morning. It may not be. And with 10-degree weather out there, it probably won't be. Yeah. Uh, so well, all that stuff's finally come together. Talked about Tesla then and Elon Musk. How do they factor mm -hmm. into all this? Well, they're, what they did is create the market. They got all the early adopters, right? 
Um, so they created a company out of early adopter EV owners who thought they were cool. Well, that's great. It's still a multi-billion dollar company, but they are being hit as well as the general market by what's been happening. And, and there are so many players now. I mean, every automaker now has EV offerings and they're, they're coming out very quickly with new ones. So Tesla still rises above the rest, but everybody else is essentially fighting for scraps at this point. And they have, they all have billions of dollars committed to it. And over time, you know, they're going to scrape away at Tesla's dominant market share. But because Tesla was the first mover and, and got so many of the early adopters who wanted something cool, um, you know, they're still better off with their EV initiative than, than say a GM or, or, uh, you know, Honda or, you know, pick another automaker. You know, the, uh, much of the country lives in an area where the cold weather won't be an issue. I mean, obviously, sure. we know what I'm talking about. And then for the other mm-hmm. half of the country, it's an issue for four months or five months of the year. Uh, I did see some calculation, perhaps it was sent in from a listener, that when the it's cold enough, maybe zero degrees, which we've seen, their car loses uh, 1% of range for every mile driven. So if yeah, you that sounds about right. drive 25 miles, you've just lost a quarter of the drivability of the vehicle. Um, yeah. But, but I, I must say that when I brought this up, and this is anecdotal, but a lot of my listeners that have electric cars love their electric cars. They, um, I don't think, are, are down on it the way you're making it sound the industry is. Well, they're, they're, they're growing. Sales are growing. I mean, I think they doubled last year. Electric cars doubled their market share over the year before. I think they sold between 7 and 8%. So it's still a vast minority. It's just the, the direction in which the industry is headed. And your, your listeners who like EVs, yeah, they're great. They're fun to drive. And if you stay in range, if you've got a daily commute that you kind of understand, you well, understand the range of your car, yep. great. I mean, and that's, and that's so much of driving these days, even in this post-pandemic era of nobody going into offices. But the uncertainty at the margins is what keeps people away from them. And the cost of getting a fast charging uh, uh, system in your garage. And also, you know, even though there are now thousands of charging stations out on the highway, you know, what if, you, uh, what if you're going to pull up to um, a truck stop or something and they've got six chargers? Well, they're all full. What are you going to do? I mean, you know, you can delay your trip for half hour, an hour to wait. I mean, there are just so many logistical things that still make, okay. make it very difficult. Well, let me read you a text from one of our listeners. I'm intrigued by your constant conversations about electric vehicles. This has come up on mm-hmm. our show a lot lately. This is my opinion. They are the future. The issue is the fact that the infrastructure needs to giddy up to be able to support electric cars. Let's keep in mind, it took 100 years for the current infrastructure that we now have for gas vehicles to be in place. A gas station, literally on every corner. Uh, That will happen with electric charging stations at some point, and it'll happen quicker than 100 years. Signed, Lou Manfredini, one of my colleagues who owns a electric car. Mm -hmm. Um, So give me a short response to him. Okay, let's say it takes five years. I'm trying to decide right now what, whether I want to buy an all-electric vehicle, not whether in five or ten years, you know, the industry and the infrastructure, transportation infrastructure is ready for me. Why don't I just wait five years then until it's all built out? I mean, yeah, it's not going to take 100 years. Nothing takes 100 years anymore. But even if it takes a few years and you're a consumer right now confronting that choice, and, and dealers are saying this, like, yeah. there's a lot of hesitancy. And as long as ICE, internal combustion vehicles, are not, like, Illegal, which who knows could happen at some point, 
a lot of consumers are going to go with what's comfortable, what's reliable, what they can count on, and which, you know, frankly, the mileage available in these in ICE vehicles and especially in hybrids, you know, is fantastic these days. Yeah, right. Well, you, your article says you, you wrote that the revolution is stalling. It's not canceled. I got to go. No. Did you say illegal? Who knows, John? Who knows? Okay. I mean, there uh, are people who would like to make them illegal. Let's I know that. that. Well, that's that's okay. Fine. But the earth isn't flat, and we'll talk about that another day. Uh, nice okay. to talk. Nice to talk to you, sir. All right. Thank you, John. It's Dale Bus, and I'm John Williams. All right. Let's do more business news on the Wintrust Business Lunch with Steve Grzanich. Start your timer. It's time for the Wintrust Business Minute, sharing Chicago's business news of the day. A task force that included Illinois lawmakers, media organizations, and schools has presented its findings on the state of local journalism. It finds local news outlets are shrinking at a high rate, creating news deserts most likely to be found in small downstate communities. The task force says the Chicago area is among 20 U.S. metros with the highest loss of news per capita. Illinois is one of the top 10 states that have lost the most newspapers. And five counties in Illinois have no local news outlets at all. The task force has recommended tax credits, exemptions, and fellowships as ways to increase local news. A company that partnered with Lyle-based Navistar on autonomous trucking has run into more headwinds. Two Simple Holdings will voluntarily remove itself from the Nasdaq Stock Exchange and has terminated its registration with the Securities and Exchange Commission. The company's stock price has been hit by volatility, high interest rates, and declines in its valuation. Too Simple says the company will undergo a transformation and can better navigate that change as a private entity instead of a publicly traded company. It went public back in 2021 with a $1 billion initial public offering. I'm Steve Grzanich, and that's your Wintrust Business Minute. Business of food time. Here's Steve Alexander. Yeah, thank you. And how about this? There is a machine at the Mars Wrigley Company's Research and Development Center on Goose Island that chews gum. Yes, absolutely. A machine that we affectionately call Chewbacca. (laughs) I love that name. Who she is and the big event that happened today on Goose Island after I thank the Chevy Silverado and ChevyDriveChicago.com for sponsoring us. There has never been a better time to put a Silverado in your toolbox. Okay, on the phone is Amanda Davies, head of R&D, among other things, for Mars Wrigley. We're super excited. We're opening our brand new R&D pilot plant here in Chicago. This 42,000 square foot building filled with high-tech machines and lots of smart people in white coats will be creating and testing what's next for the company. We have an ingredient kitchen, so it's where we can develop and test and, and create the the ingredients. So a kind of raw material kitchen. But the second part of this facility is is then where kind of really where all the product development magic happens. So a kitchen where our developers can kind of create new products. Um, and then the third part of the facility is is one where we then kind of learn and develop how to take those kitchen design products to scale so we can then get these products to our factories around the world. How about taste testing? Do you have some people doing that? Oh, absolutely. Humans play probably the most important role in terms of our our sensory. We really rely on our sensory testing of our our expert panels that we host very regularly to test these materials. Well, I happen to know somebody who'd be very good at that. I I mean, he has decades of experience tasting candy. Are you hiring? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, would you like a job? Because if you do, I'll, I'll send you an application. I'm uh, happy to uh, consider you for a job. Okay. But you've got to appreciate we might just have to put you through your paces first. <laughs> Mars Wrigley with a big, shiny new R&D center on Goose Island. I don't think she's going to hire me. 
On the food calendar, today's National Peking Duck Day. I'm Steve Alexander. That's the business of food on 720 WGN. So Peter Seltonwright is the co-founder and COO of a Waukegan-based company called Prefab Pads. I think we're talking about small homes and cabins here. Peter, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Speaking of utility bills, we were a little while ago. <laughs> Maybe a smaller home is looking pretty attractive for people right now. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, I think the yeah, the smaller home combined with um, a lot of the things that we do with, with high levels of insulation, um, uh, electric on-demand water heaters, things like that, it's, it, that really pays off in terms of electric bills. So what are we talking about, cabins or prefab homes? How big are they? What are they? Yeah, so it's, I, I guess you could say a little bit of both. Um, they are designed sort of in a, a Scandinavian modern design, a lot of wood, so they feel very cabiny. Um, but they are a bit more modern. A lot of a lot of windows, a lot of glass, things that are designed to kind of make people feel like um, you know the outdoors are coming in. And they are, you know, I quote unquote tiny homes in terms of square footage, uh, but they are different than maybe what you have seen with tiny homes that, you know, come on wheels and they're only eight to nine feet wide. Um, these are a bit larger and they go on real foundations. So if you are putting these in your backyard or on a raw piece of land that you have, it's actual real estate. Um, so, you know, while tiny homes may be accurate, it's you know, not the traditional term. Less than 500 square feet. You're based in Waukegan. Um, where are you selling these? Where are people buying these? Yeah, so we, we have our, our manufacturing facility in Waukegan, and we build these cabins. We finish them inside and out. Um, everything is run. Everything's ready to go. It's all about, you know, once it gets dropped on the, the foundation on the land, it's, it's simple, you know, plugging in your water, your electricity, and your waste. Um, and they're ready to be lived in. And, and so once we finish these uh, in the factory, we place them on uh, a, a semi, and they travel around the country. So we've, we've shipped units to Texas, Maine, Connecticut. Um, we did a bunch for a Vermont hotel. Um, we've got things going to Indiana, Ohio, Massachusetts, uh, even out to Martha's Vineyard. Um, you know, an island off of Massachusetts, so mm. uh, some unique areas. What's the price range? I suppose I'll need to buy my land because this house doesn't come with a lot. But what's the house cost? Yeah, so uh, we have four different models for uh, this line that we, we we've partnered with. It's called My Cabin. So My Cabin was originally um, it was born in Latvia, and we wanted to bring their set of cabins over here. Um, so the My Cabin line has, has four units. The smallest is actually a sauna. Um, and then we go all the way up to the 456 square foot, one bed, full kitchen, full bathroom. Um, that sells in the mid uh, 140s and then all the way down to the mid 30s for the sauna. Um, and then a couple units in between. And they're designed to serve a lot of different purposes. Um, the term ADU, accessory dwelling unit is is really all-encompassing for maybe something you put in your backyard. So it could be property you already own and you live on, um, but you want space for an office or an extra bedroom for the in-laws um, or you know, whatever it may be. Um, these could be in, in, the right, in the right areas, the right 
real estate and, and zoning laws, um, you know, they can be dropped into the backyard as an accessory dwelling unit. Uh, really fascinating and probably the right idea right now. Prefabpads.com. Oh, no, is it .co? Is that the um, .co? Is the website? That's correct. Yeah. Yeah, but the products that the product that we sell, uh, we have a website for that, and that's www.mycabin.us. Mycabin.us, made in the U.S., uh, right here in the Chicago area. Okay, Peter, uh, let's uh, talk again another day. Fascinating. Good luck to you, and thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. That's Peter Selton, right.